Today's Talk 10 Tuesday is sponsored by Ipsalooza, inviting you to register to win a free subscription to ICD-10 Monitor webcast for one year. Enter to win before July 31st, winner announced Tuesday, August 1st. We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer on July 18th, 2023. Today, Susie Vestovich will reveal ways to boost revenue at your facility. We'll get the latest coding news from Lori Johnson. Tiffany Ferguson covers the social determinants of health. Stanley Nockhamson reports on breaking news from CMS. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Dr. Reamer shares her talkback segment. Now, here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who firmly believes he should abandon Twitter and embrace threads though he's not sure why. Chuck Buck. <laughs> I, I am not sure why. <laughs> Thanks for like Anthony. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the 561st Live Edition Talk 10 Tuesday. And good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck. And good morning, everyone. Hey, as you heard Clark Anthony announce, Susie Vestivist joins us this morning to explain how facilities can boost their revenue. Also, Stanley Dockerson is standing by to report on last week's breaking news from CMS. That's when two proposed rules were posted by CMS. Of course, that would be the outpatient prospective payment system and the Medicare physician fee schedule. Both are effective calendar year 2024. What do you think about that? Well, as usual, I'm behind. I haven't had a chance to go through them yet, and I'm looking forward to seeing what Stanley has to say about them. Indeed. Well, he's got a lot to say, I'm sure. So, Erica, what are you going to be saying during your talkback segment this morning? Well, I'm taking a page out of Ron's book and doing a hodgepodge of different topics. All right. Very good. We have much to report. So we begin this morning with Tim Powell. Tim is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. Thanks, Chuck. And today we're going to talk about uh, part of the new outpatient rule, and that is to introduce the intensive outpatient program, which is a milestone in Medicare behavioral health coverage. So the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has proposed a significant new development for current year 2024 outpatient prospective payment system, or OPPS, and ambulatory surgery center ASC regulations, the intensive outpatient program, or IOP. This comprehensive healthcare initiative aims to fill one of the primary gaps in behavioral health coverage under Medicare. The proposal outlines IOP scope, doctor certification requirements, billing and coding protocols, as well as payment rates. IOP services could be extended to hospital outpatient departments and outpatient departments, community mental health centers, federally qualified health centers, and rural health clinics subject to finalization of the proposed rule. So what is the scope of these IOP services? The IOP is outlined by CMS under the directive of Section 4124 of the Consolidated Appropriations Act and is designed to provide psychiatric services to people suffering from acute mental illness or substance abuse disorders. It will function as an organized and distinct outpatient initiative offering a range of behavioral health services services that will be charged on a per diem basis. These services will be under the OPPS or other relevant payment system when provided in designated settings such as hospital outpatient departments, CMHCs, FQHCs, and RHCs. The cost per diem for IOP services will be based on those that have been and continue to be covered by Medicare as part of the partial hospitalization program or PHP benefit under the broader OPPS. 
So physician certification treatment plan protocols, uh, amendments brought forward by Section 4124A of the CAA 2023 and Section 1861 of the Social Security Act necessitate a physician's involvement in the IOP implementation. Under the proposed regulation, a doctor will need to ascertain that each patient requires at least nine hours of IOP services per week. The certification process will have to be repeated no less frequently than every other month, and CMS is looking to enshrine this rule in the regulations governing IOP provisions across all settings and is currently seeking public public commentary on the recertification period. The IOP's establishment under Medicare will continue to significantly expand access to necessary behavioral health care services, creating an inclusive and robust system that can cater to the diverse needs of Medicare beneficiaries. And as I said earlier, CMS welcomes your thoughts and contributions to the ongoing discussion on this proposed rule. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert, and he's the national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. Reviewing the American Hospital Association's ICD-10 CMPCS quarterly coding clinic guidance is vital to ensure appropriate and correct assignment of codes. Each quarter, the AHA examines outstanding coding issues new procedures and technology, and provides updates to previous coding guidance. Having an expert at your fingertips to help make sense of the guidance, putting it into real-world examples, can help coding professionals to fully master current requirements and guidelines. Now, back by popular demand, ICD-10 Monitor is offering an exclusive on-demand webcast that will review important information released in the second quarter of the 2023 AHA ICD-10 CMPCS Coding Clinic. Nationally respected coding educator Kay Piper will review and report on the guidance published, so you're up to date with compliant coding guidelines. Register to listen now at the ICD University Bookstore. Now's the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica. And hello to our listeners. July 28th is World Hepatitis Day. According to the World Health Organization, 354 million people live with hepatitis B or C globally. What is hepatitis? It is an inflammation of the liver that is caused by several infectious viruses and non-infectious agents. The five main strains of hepatitis are A, B, C, D, and E. I know it's very um, unique thinking there. Hepatitis A is transmitted through ingestion of contaminated um, food and water or direct contact with an infectious person. Hepatitis B is a viral infection, which is most commonly transmitted from mother to child during birth or delivery, contact with blood or fluids during sex with an infected partner, or unsafe injections or exposure to sharp instruments. Hepatitis C is bloodborne viral infection, which is contracted through unsafe injections, unscreened blood transfusion, or again, sex with an infected partner. There is no vaccine for that strain of hepatitis. Hepatitis D requires hepatitis B to replicate usually contracted after infection of hepatitis B, 
but treatment success is very low. Hepatitis E is transmitted, transmitted via fecal oral route, usually by contaminated water. A vaccine is not available other than in China. From a coding perspective, viral hepatitis is found in the range of B15 to B19. There are options for acute and chronic viral disease. You can specifically code types A, B, C, and E. All codes are CC, except for the codes that include hepatic coma. This condition is also known as hepatic encephalopathy. The brain loses function when the liver can no longer remove the toxins from the blood. The codes which contain hepatic coma in their description are MCCs. The bacterial hepatitis is assigned K75.89, and alcoholic hepatitis is K70.10. In the MSDRGs, viral hepatitis as a principal diagnosis will fall in MDC7, disorders and diseases of the hepatobiliary system and pancreas. More specifically, MSDRGs 441, 442, and 443. Please note that alcoholic hepatitis will be found in MSDRGs 432, 433, and 434. These are the medical DRGs. If a liver procedure is added, then the MSDRG changes to 405, 406, and 407. The takeaway that I had from doing my research in this area is that most hepatitis is preventable with vaccination. Hepatitis A, B, and D are reduced by vaccination. Another takeaway is that when the patient has hepatic coma, you want that documented so that you can get your MCC. And with that, Erica, back to you. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Now's the time for the Dr. Tuesday report on the social determinants of health. And we do so with Tiffany Ferguson. And good morning, Tiffany. Good morning, all. Happy to be back. And thank you so much for Dr. Garte Hopkins for covering me for me last week. Okay, let's get started on today's topic. So I thought it would be important to mention this week with Stat News provided an interesting series on a report released in 2003 for the, from the National Academies Press titled Unequal Treatment, Confronting Racial and Ethnic Disparities in Health. The release, originally in 2003, was groundbreaking at the time to interject the realities of racial disparities to the, in the provider and patient sides of healthcare. However, as Stat News reports, in the last 20 years, not many outcomes in racial health disparities have changed. Although the conversations have been more present and data now often uh, examines race. It's, I mean, d- data is coming out pretty, pretty extensively. Uh, improved health care has not been achieved. As I review these articles and see the momentum we make in topics such as SDOH, it should be clear that poverty should not conceal racial health disparities that exist in our health care system. These racial disparities span all socioeconomic and education levels. 
On July 12th, the New York Times released the news from a UN report that concluded that racism and sexism were the primary attributes to black women maternal deaths, not genetics or lifestyle choices. Black women in the United States are three times more likely than white women to die during or soon after childbirth. Those problems persist across income and education levels, as Black women with college degrees are still 1.6 times as likely to die in childbirth than white women who have not finished high school. Aside from the overt racial and structural racial issues, such as the recent court ruling regarding affirmative action, I can't help but continue to force the subject of implicit biases and its impact on our progress. Implicit bias occur automatically and unintentionally, passively influencing our judgments, decisions, and behaviors. Last year, Forbes contributor Dana Brownlee posted an op-ed piece that challenged one implicit bias concept, particularly the comment by white individuals that color does not matter often to appease our own sense of discomfort when it comes to race. Brownlee's article titled, Dear White People, when you say you don't see color, this is what we really hear. She goes on to say that when you say that, people can't make an impact on what they don't see. People can't address what they don't acknowledge. People can't affect change around what's already been dismissed. I can guarantee that if a person is holding on to I don't see color worldview, they are not doing too much of anything to move the needle on racism. So in my initial example on racial inequality for black maternal health, what if we started by automatically flagging black women as high risk in maternal care, requiring access to additional care and services to ensure they receive the necessary support they need. It's already happening and it's actually achieving outcomes. This is a detour from our prior notion that we cannot flag patients because this would lead to labeling. But in doing so, are we failing to acknowledge the role that race is playing in our poor health outcomes? Additionally, hospital health outcomes federally and locally should not only include poverty, but reviews should include examination of, for racial disparities across all indicators. The first step to address race as a health inequity is to acknowledge its existence and take the necessary steps to represent race as a health risk factor that requires additional treatment and attention. Hey, you know, Tiffany, we, there's been some recent uh, pregnancy-related complications for Black athletes. Tori Bowie died of it. Serena Williams and Allison Felix both had, um, I believe they had uh, preeclampsia and almost died as well. So it, this is a really important topic. Thank you so much. That was Tiffany Ferguson, the CEO for Phoenix Medical Management Incorporated. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And thank you again, Tiffany, for an excellent article. And be sure to read her story. It's in today's ICD-10 Monitor. What do you do when CMS unloads a bunch of new codes in your lap like fallen leaves? How do you stay on top of your game as a coding genius? Well, you subscribe to the ICD-10 Monitor Coding Portal. For an unbelievably low subscription of $35, you have access to the superstars of coding. Lori Ann Bryant, Dr. Erica Reamer, and Lori Johnson. 
You also have access to more than 40 educational webcasts, and you'll earn CEUs to maintain your credentials. The retail value, more than $5,960, but for a limited time, your subscription is only $35 per webcast, a savings of 75%. Subscribe today to the ICD-10 Monitor Coding Portal. Last Thursday afternoon, CMS has released two proposed rules. Here now to report the details of those two proposed rules is longtime contributor Stanley Nogerson. Good morning, Stanley. Look, the two proposed rules in one news dump last Thursday from CMS. Stanley, what do we really need to know? Good morning, Chuck, and everybody hmm. on the call. Well, we're now in the season for the Medicare payment proposed rules, several being issued in the last couple of weeks. These apply for Medicare services delivered on January 1st. 2024 and after. The new physician payment proposed rule will probably generate the most response from the public. CMS has proposed that overall payment amounts under the physician fee schedule would be reduced by 1.25% as compared to calendar year 2023. This is due to factors specified by law. CMS is also proposing increases in payment for many visit services such as primary care and these proposed increases require offsetting and budget neutrality adjustments to all other services paid under the physician fee schedule, again, by law. CMS is also proposing coding and payment for several new services to help underserved populations. CMS is proposing to pay for certain caregiver training services in specified circumstances so that practitioners are appropriately paid for engaging with caregivers to support people with Medicare in carrying out their treatment plans. CMS is also proposing separate coding and payment for community health integration services, which would include person-centered planning, health system coordination, promoting patient self-advocacy, and facilitating access to community-based resources to address unmet social needs that interfere with the practitioner's diagnosis and treatment of the patient. CMS is proposing to implement a separate add-on payment for HCPCS code G2211. This add-on code will better recognize the resource costs associated with evaluation and management visits for primary care and longitudinal care of complex patients. Generally, it will be applicable for outpatient office visits as an additional payment recognizing the inherent cost clinicians may incur when longitudinally treating a patient's single, serious, or complex chronic condition. CMS is also expanding the coverage of certain telehealth services, proposing to add health and well-being coaching services to the Medicare telehealth services list on a temporary basis for calendar year 2024 and social determinants of health risk assessments on a permanent basis. Now, in the outpatient PPS proposed rule, CMS proposes updating OPBS patient, patient rates for hospitals that meet applicable quality reporting requirements by 2.8%. And as we heard earlier from Tim Powell, CMS is proposing to establish the intensive outpatient program under Medicare. In the home health proposed payment system, CMS is proposing routine statutory required updates to the home health payment rates for calendar year 2024. Based on these requirements, which included an overall change in the payment method, CMS estimates that Medicare payments to home health agencies in calendar year 2024 would decrease in the aggregate by 2.2% 2 
or 375 million compared to calendar year 2023, based on all of the proposed policies. This proposed rule also includes a requirement for comments from the public, as well as patients and advocates regarding information related to ensuring the appropriate access to and provision of home health aid services for all beneficiaries receiving care under the home health benefit. And for the end-stage renal disease PPS for calendar year 2024, CMS is proposing to increase their base rate to $269.99, increasing total payments to ESRD facilities by approximately 1.6%. So we see a mixed bag of payment rates, some up, some down. Almost all of them are done according to the law, not under CMS discretion. And again, as these are all proposed rules, CMS is looking for public comment by the proposed comment date, generally two months after issuance of the rule. Thanks, Stanley. That was Stanley Nockamson, the founder of Nockamson Advisors, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Stanley, thank you again. And folks, Stanley is one of our earliest contributors here at Talking Tuesday. Our lead story this morning is about money, revenue for your hospitals. However, there are ways to boost revenue to your facility. And for that story, we turn to our special guest, Susie Bestovich. And Susie, what are you suggesting this morning? Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Chuck, to answer your question, I'll share some RCM updates on how clinics and hospitals can boost revenue while minimizing headaches. So grab your coffee or your water and sit back and let's dive in. First off, I want to bring to your attention that revenue leakage is a huge challenge for healthcare organizations. It's money slipping through financial fingers. According to a study by the Healthcare Financial Management Association, revenue leakage can account for up to 5% of a healthcare organization's net revenue. That likely represents the difference between profitable and not profitable. Fear not, there are solutions to tackle revenue leakage. One effective strategy is strong denial management. In fact, the Medical Group Management Association found that Healthcare organizations with robust denial management strategies experienced an incredible 15% increase in their overall net collection rates. It turns the tide and fills those revenue gaps. Now, let's talk about the power of technology to boost revenue. Artificial intelligence is transforming all kinds of industries, and healthcare is no exception. AI-powered RCM solutions are revolutionizing financial processes. They analyze vast amounts of data, identify patterns, and automate tasks. It's almost like having a revenue-boosting superhero by your side. Studies show, and our clients at Tia Tech have seen, AI in healthcare RCM has the potential to reduce claim denials by a jaw-dropping 50% and slash administrative costs by an impressive 70%. Another exciting technological advancement is patient self-service portals. We've seen with Tia Tech, these portals offer convenience and efficiency by allowing patients to schedule appointments, view and pay bills online, and access their medical records. It's like giving patients the keys to their own healthcare kingdom but it's not just helpful to patients, it boosts revenue. 
A study published in the Journal of Medical Internet Research revealed that clinics and hospitals experienced a 30% reduction in billing-related phone calls and a fantastic 20% improvement in patient payments. It's a win-win for both patients and healthcare organizations. To further optimize revenue cycles, there are some best practices to consider. Prioritizing staff education and training is key. By investing in ongoing education, healthcare organizations empower their staff to stay updated with industry trends, regulations, and coding updates. This leads to fewer errors, reduced claim denials, and faster payment cycles. Additionally, implementing robust analytics and reporting tools can provide valuable insights into revenue cycles. When our clients learn the benefits of a transparency and analytics dashboard, there's no turning back. By making data-driven decisions, clinics and hospitals can identify bottlenecks, optimize processes, and pave the way for financial success. By embracing solutions such as I. AI-powered tools, and patient self-service portals, clinics and hospitals can boost revenue. Additionally, prioritizing staff education and implementing robust analytics with with reporting tools enhances financial stability and quality care. Enjoy the coffee and stay awesome. Over to you, Erica. Thanks, Susie. That was Susie Vestovich, the Chief Operating Officer for Tia Tech USA. Here now with a very popular segment here at Dr. Susie. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thanks, Chuck. Today I am imitating Ron Hirsch's Monday uh, Rounds format and touching on multiple topics that I found interesting over the past few weeks. Medscape ran a story by a Dr. Bruce Cohn at the end of May called Choosing Our Terms, The Diagnostic Words We Use Can Be Harmful. This article talks about certain psychiatric diagnoses and how they are um, viewed as pejorative, like schizophrenia and personality disorder. I don't object to retiring stigmatizing language, but we must keep in mind that ICD-10-CM has specific indexing. I would hate for us to start calling conditions by terms which no longer capture the diagnoses and codes, thereby losing the ability to track and trend data, among other things. Psychosis spectrum syndrome will not code to schizophrenia unless the Coordination and Maintenance Committee um, makes some changes, so early adopters need to beware. The next article was a treatise on copy and paste one of my arch nemeses. I found it in STAT, and it was by Sandeep Johar called Bloated patient records are filled with false information thanks to copy and paste. Most of it we have all heard, read, or experienced before. False information being propagated as chart lore, the bloating of the medical record, and how copy and paste can be used to exaggerate the patient's complexity to increase reimbursement. I was intrigued by one solution offered, however. They proposed having a single daily progress note that multiple physicians add to an edit. I'm not sure I would give carte blanche to allow providers to edit someone else's documentation, but they certainly could augment and notate. The fear I have is that providers who are prone to cutting corners might skimp on taking their own history 
relying instead on the previous caregivers. But it's an interesting concept of collaborating. I think it might make it even easier for the reader, too. The next article made me finally suck it up and purchase a subscription to the New York Times so I could access it. Steve Law wrote, AI may someday work medical miracles. For now, it helps do paperwork. In the past, I had someone float the idea of recording the patient encounter instead of crafting documentation. I rejected the idea out of hand because who would want to listen to all the superfluous details? The whole point of documentation is to separate the wheat from the chaff and make it accessible for the reader. If AI summarizes and doesn't inject fabrications, which are referred to as hallucinations, this could be quite time-saving. But can the AI distinguish what is valuable and what is white noise? How can it know what I, as a provider, have left unsaid? I'm not sure, but I do know this for a fact. If the providers don't take the time to review and edit, the note can be just as bad as copy and pasted notes are now. The article also discussed a homegrown technology at the University of Pittsburgh, which, quote, translates medical terminology into patient English at about a fourth grade reading level, close quote. This seems very practical now that patients have access to their own notes under the open notes law. There is also indexing of medical moments, so the patient can revisit portions of the provider-patient conversation. The providers also get the transcript with links to the corresponding sections of the recording so they can verify the accuracy. This article actually enticed me to offer my services on LinkedIn to AI technology companies who are developing it as a documentation tool. I want to be be sure that the documentation is enhanced, not degraded by the technology. I'd be supportive of any technology if the provider had taken my Dr. Reamer's documentation modules. They would have the understanding of why we document, what constitutes good and risky documentation, and would make sure that the documentation advances the care for the patient. Memberships are available for individuals or for groups, and an institutional discount is available on request. For more information, please check out my article in ICD-10 Monitor. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica. Excellent topic, very much. And that is going to be a wrap for our 561st live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I want to thank our panelists today, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, Tiffany Ferguson, Stanley Nockerson, Susie Vestovich, who reported our early story. And of course, a very special thank you to my dear friend, Dr. Erica Reamer, who co-hosts these Talk 10 Tuesdays every Tuesday. And remember, if you can't listen to us live, folks, you can always listen to our broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google. And when you do, give us a review, rate us. Until the next time, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk to you on Tuesday. Have a great week, everybody. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.